Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. If anybody is in the hallway for any reason other than bathroom or transition, please come in. Save your conversations for after church, please. If you see anybody in the hallway, tell them the pastor said, get out of here. Get in your chair. You can talk about where you're going to lunch after church. Before we begin with our passage today, I want to just pray for those who have been sick. There's a lot of people that have been sick. Some members of our church I know are not here this morning, friends of mine even, that have contacted and said that they have the flu. And if you've been keeping up with sort of culture, this seems to be a different flu strain. I mean, they say that every year, but this one seems to be pretty severe. There have been some deaths related to this particular flu. And I know uh, I read an article about a week and a half ago that within 11 states in the country, uh, a lot of schools were shutting down because of this, this, this flu. So I do want to pray and that we trust the Lord, but trusting the Lord doesn't always mean we won't get sick or experience consequences. Sometimes we use... God is sovereign as if that prevents us from going through any struggles. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know that that's not true. It just means God's in control when you're struggling, not you're not going to go through any struggles. And so let's pray, and then we'll jump into the passage this morning. Father, we, we pray for just people who are just sick in general. We start just globally to people who are just experiencing just sickness in their bodies and who are particularly those who are, that belong to you, those who profess to believe in you, that may be unable to get to their place of worship this morning. We pray that you would have mercy on them, that you would, you would minister to them in, in very special ways, that, that they would be able to know that it's you and them, that you're caring for them. I pray that you would, where appropriate and, and possible, that you would have members of their churches, if their church is there, that that they would be able to come by and just figure out ways to serve these folks, whether it's through food or just prayer or anything, Lord. So I pray globally. We pray for our country, Lord, as, as there are multiple uh, the flu. We don't know to, to varying degrees how severe this flu is. We just read the articles and however truthful they are. But it seems to be this flu is causing significant damage among people, Lord. So I pray that you would have mercy. Use, the, use miracle, Lord, or modern medicine to get at people's health, particularly those who belong to you. And so, Lord, we pray for those in this church who this morning are not here because they just couldn't make it because of their, their health symptoms, those adults and their children, Lord. We pray that you would have mercy on them and that you would heal their bodies, touch their bodies this morning, Lord, and help them to persevere in, in the midst of this, even though uh, they're experiencing this. If you, if you choose not to heal them immediately and they go through this, this, this sickness for some time, days or weeks even, Pray that you would preserve their faith in you as we walk through this. For you know that it's when we're sick and when we're struggling that we question, why don't you do something more than any other times? And so, Lord, I pray that you would protect their faith in you despite their, 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 their illnesses. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go to Romans chapter 1. We are in a series in the book of Romans. We're obviously in chapter one at the very beginning on some level. We've had a couple messages so far 
And so we will continue today. We're looking at five verses today, verses 18 to 23. Next week, we will be looking at verses 24 to 32. We will then finish the first chapter of Romans. Having said that, I'm reading from the CSB version, beginning in verse 18, and I quote, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Lord, help me to be able to communicate what you've given me from this passage, where it is applicable, where it is accurate. I pray that you would burn it on the hearts of those of us listening. Where I'm inaccurate, it's not applicable, may we forget it. But where it matters to us and where you want it to stick and where you want us to do something about what we see here from our, in our own lives and in the lives of our church and beyond, I pray that you would, by your grace, impress it upon our hearts for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a very interesting passage. Not that any other parts of Scripture are not interesting, but this is a passage that's, that's interesting because it, it presents a picture that God created the world and that somehow people, just by mere observation, should know about God. And not just about a God, but very particular things about God. So by mere observation, people should know enough about God that there's some level of pursuit of him. Now that's interesting because many of us think of this as, what, what does he mean? Is he, is he saying that just by mere observation of the world that people would come to saving faith? Is that what he's saying? Is he, is he saying that people, God is expecting people to, by just observing what he's created, them to come to a place of saving faith and lifetime of worship of God in the way that we just sang, just prayed, just gave, just did for Jesus? Is that what this passage is saying? Is, is God expecting people, without any proclamation of the gospel, to by mere observation of creation come to a place of saving faith. This is an interesting passage because this is bold, because it says things like this. As a result, people are without excuse. Okay, this is, this is looking to people, whoever these people are, are going to stand before God and not have any excuse for knowing God from mere observation. 
But is this saving knowledge? Is it saving? Last week, we looked at verses 16 and 17, which I said many people believe, and I would agree that they're sort of the theme verse of the book of Romans. And the righteousness of God, the all-encompassing righteousness of God is on display. And so that, that, that verse, those two verses are sort of the bridge from the introduction in verses 1 through 15 to now the instruction. So we get this introduction in these 15 verses, and then we get 16 and 17 that just sort of lay the foundation for what the book is going to be about. And then we get verses 18 begin sort of the instruction. Now, it's important to know two things whenever we read the Bible, period. Two things we must always know. One, the Bible, no matter who wrote it, no matter what human being God inspired to write the Bible, is always written from God's perspective. Okay, if we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, then what we believe is that God worked through his spirit, through the men who wrote it, using their intellect, their abilities, illustrations, their personalities, using all of that to have them write down exactly what God wanted them to write down. That's what I believe about the Bible. That's what many of us believe about the Bible. That's what all of us should believe. Otherwise, and we can't take this seriously. So we must begin with knowing the Bible is always written from God's perspective. From his perspective, he's explaining to us, from his point of view, the problems and the solutions. The other thing we have to know is that most, if not all, of the letters that are written, by letters I mean New Testament letters, epistles, like Romans, they're written to a mixed congregation. They're written to both Jews are usually in these churches and a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So while all the letters are usually written to everyone, they're speaking to everyone, there will be times during the letter that the author, the human author of that letter, on behalf of God, will communicate specifically to one of those groups of people. Sometimes they'll just be addressing, it's always speaking to everyone, but there will be moments when the author, on behalf of God, is addressing someone or someone specifically. In chapter 2, we'll see, we'll see this clearly when he says, and as for you Jews, he's speaking to the Jewish people for a moment. Well, many, and I would agree with this, believe that, that, that Paul, on behalf of God, is speaking to the non-Jewish people of this church in Rome. And, I, and what I think Paul is doing here is, you know, these people don't have, they're, they're in a city that is, Rome is a huge city. It's an idolatrous city, so there are people that worship a number of different things. They worship different statues, different temples. There's all kinds of, there's Greeks, there's Romans. There's, this is the cosmopolitan city. This is the New York City of the day. And people are coming there to trade, to take stuff, to buy stuff, to sell stuff, to travel back to where they're from. And make money. So Rome is the central place where you get all of this. So it's very strategic that a church is there. And so, so as, as Paul, on behalf of God, is writing this letter, he, he, it seems as if he is, in a very abbreviated way, explaining to them why the culture they're in is the way that it is. Very similar to, to Moses. When Moses wrote Genesis, Moses was writing for many reasons, but I would say these two stand out. One, he wanted the Israelites to know 
how they became the people of God. So Genesis is sort of their, their ancestry.com. So here's how you all became the people of God, and it dates back to Abraham. But he also wanted them to know how the world became what it is. Why is there sin in the world? Why is there evil? Why were they enslaved? Why were they mistreated? Why are there so many gods? What's, what's happening here? Well, this is what he's doing here in a very succinct way. He's going to explain in these, these 14 verses, we're looking at five today. He's going to explain why the world is the way that it is. And because they live in Rome and see all this idolatry and all this stuff, and many of them, it just was normal for them. He wants to give them God's point of view on why the culture that they live in is the way that it is. And I would say that it's not just the Roman culture, it's our culture. Why is it the way that it is? He doesn't get, go all the way back to Genesis 3, but he does, in effect, make some points that are similar. So we're going to look at this in three. He says, for God's wrath, in verse 18, and there's, three, there's three different fours. So for God's wrath, for his divine attributes, for though they knew God. So we're going to look at these three fours in detail. Beginning in the first one, for wrath, for God's wrath, verse 18. Here's what he says in 18, 19. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So for God's wrath is revealed from heaven. So he begins with those words. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. He's stating by this statement, this is a, this is a serious transition. The word righteousness isn't used in this verse, but this is coming off of verse 17, this righteousness of God that is all-encompassing righteousness. And now it, it transitions from this righteousness that saves people to a righteousness that now, as God's character, that now judges people. So it's a righteousness that saved people in 16 and 17 and leading up to those verses. But it's also now a different side of God. There's a different side of God. This combats sort of the, the cultural mantra that God is love and that's all that God is, and that their definition of love, the culture's definition of love is that God loves you and approves of everything that you do. This passage pushes back against the current cultural notion that God is so loving that no matter what you do, he approves of, no matter what you believe, no matter who you love, no matter what you think, no matter how you behave, God is so loving Jesus is so loving that all of that doesn't matter because his love is above everything else. But the transition from his love in verses 16 and 17 highlight an aspect of God that is very real. It's very real. And it has a problem. It has a problem. It has a problem with those who deny his existence. 
So it starts off with God's wrath. This is God's anger. God's anger that will punish. This isn't just God's anger. It's God's anger with an intent to punish is revealed from heaven. Heaven is, we tend to think of heaven as somewhere far up. Maybe. But heaven is more of, we're, we're living in, a, in one world. There's a spiritual dimension to this world that we don't see until we die. Or some of us have, who have experienced some um, supernatural events have seen some of that in this life. But there is another dimension that doesn't have to necessarily be vertical, that's just real, that behind this curtain, this is heaven is where God is. It's, it's, it's a way to say that all of who God is. So when he says God's wrath is revealed from heaven, he's not talking about a location a million miles away up. He's talking about God's, all of God's character. His anger is a part of who he is. That's a part of who he is, is revealed. It's coming from who he is from heaven. It's coming from heaven. And this is serious. Now, he uses two words. He says against, in my translation, it says against all godlessness and unrighteousness. Some translations say against ungodliness and unrighteousness. He pits these two against each other. But if your translation is ungodly, you would tend to think unrighteousness is the same thing. They sound like they're the same things. But there is a slight nuance. And scripture does do that. Scripture will often repeat itself for emphasis. So whenever we read stuff that says like, holy, 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 it's not just doing that because the, the writer was stuttering. You know, he wouldn't stutter. First of all, it'd be hard to stutter while you write. That would be amazing that the spirit would inspire you. And write. No, the, the repetition is for a purpose. It's emphasis. They want to make sure you understand that this thing is true. So when Jesus says like, truly, truly, I say to you, it's like, listen, what I'm about to say is the truest thing you've heard. Holy, holy, holy. It's this grand declaration that God does do that. Scripture does repeat itself so that we get emphasis. But this is not what's happening here, though. There's a little bit of a, of a difference between ungodliness or godlessness and unrighteousness. This is the point that he's making when he separates these two. It says, for God's wrath, God's anger to, and intent to punish is coming from all that he is in heaven against godlessness, that's more referring to a reverence for God and then a desire to obey God. So it deals more with what people believe. So this, this wrath from God is coming towards what people believe or not believe, disbelieve. It deals more with believing. And ungodliness deals more with behaving. See, the ungodliness are the actions. The unrighteousness are the actions. Ungodliness or godlessness is the belief. It's the lack of reverence and belief in a God that leads to actions of not believing, misbehaving, if you will. So this is important because belief and behave go together in the Christian life. It's what you believe and how you behave. Now, one can say they're the same thing, but they're different because there are people who claim to, be, to believe but don't behave. And there's a ton of people who behave but don't believe. These two must be together. 
must be together. From this point of view, from God's point of view, believing and behaving go hand in hand. And a person who does not believe is a person who will not behave. This doesn't work that way. It doesn't work from God's perspective. It doesn't work that way. So he's saying his anger, his intent to punish is coming because people refuse to believe and therefore refuse to behave. That's the unrighteousness. The unrighteousness is about morality, right and wrong, good and evil. So people do not behave. And the way that they do this, the primary way they do this, he says, is this. They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. So here is the picture from God's perspective. He's angry at people who do not believe or behave according to what he would want. And they restrain. They are active. So suppressing the truth is not passive. It's not passive. It's not something's happening to me. That's not passive. It's active. From God's perspective, people actively, actively ignore, push down, restrain, hinder the reality that he exists. Now, how all this works for us, sometimes it's a mystery. There are people that I know that do not believe in the Lord, and I would say, man, they're cool people. They're good people. I was at the bar. I go to the barbershop in D.C. I go to the barbershop. I was at the barbershop, and every time I go in there, I'm always laughing and having a good time with dudes that I know if they died right now and stood before the Lord, they would see a judge, not a father. And then I like them. They're good dudes. But as I said last week, they're not on the team because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And even though it seems harsh, the fact that God sent his son out of all the ways that salvation could have come, God sends his son to be killed brutally so that people's sins would be forgiven. So if you say, I don't want this, there's no analogy that works here. There's no analogy that works, to be honest. But if my son were my son, I love my kids. If my son were dying, if my son were dying, and right before he died, he handed me something and said, Poppy, can you give this to so-and-so? And I said, yes, and I will do it. And I go and bring this to this person and say, my son, before he passed away, he wanted you to have this. And if they take it, shake it up and be like, oh, I don't even like this type of stuff and throw it on the ground. Do you know how offended I'm going to be? It's going to take the all-encompassing righteousness of God to prevent me from choking this person out and sending them to see the very God that I was trying to explain with them. <laughs> right? Now, that's me, a sinful dude. So why would we think that God would not care if he sent his son to die and people think, ah, not for me. Not for me. 
you and I wouldn't do that with people we love. So God is angry. He's angry at the truth that is suppressed. He's angry at those who deny by their thoughts and their actions his existence. And here's why that's a crazy thought in verse 19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So God, from God's perspective, it's like, listen, I'm making myself known. I'm making myself known. You know, I don't, you, I don't know if many of you have maybe been to Europe. I haven't been there to see this, but you've seen this on TV or commercials. Uh, I think there's these, these guards that stand at the palace gates of the, and they don't say nothing. I don't, you don't even see those guards blink, take a breath. I don't know what they do for the bathroom. Those guys have, like, they just stand there. And people are in their faces and trying to do this and make them, and they do nothing. They just stand there. And they don't make a sound. They don't smile. They don't do anything. At least they're not supposed to. And all the stuff I've seen, I remember watching this YouTube video where these people tried everything they could but touch this dude to make him react. I thought there's no way that dude is real. Because if you'd have been like, ah, in my face, I'd have been like, hey, go ahead, man. Back up, sir. I would have said something. But that's just me. Maybe y'all wouldn't have. I'd have been like, hey, Slim, you stink. Back up. But they just stand there. And these people are making all this noise. God is making all this noise in creation, and people are standing there. They don't hear him. They don't see him. They don't acknowledge him. Making all this noise. Look at this. I'm making it plain to you. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm real. I'm here. And they just stand there. No acknowledgement. No nothing. And so God is angry. He's angry. This verse says that they suppress the truth and they suppress things about God. They suppress things about God. But it says in verse 19 that what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So it's evident among them. In the, in the, I, I like the translation that says evident within them. There's a different translation that I like that says within them because I think it points to what Paul is going to talk about in Romans chapter 2 that God has placed the law on people's hearts. So I think what Paul is getting at here is that it's evident in them because, and God has shown it to them. And we'll see this more when we get to Romans chapter 2. So what he's saying here is that God, is, God the, in, the eternal has placed his existence in the internal of man, but then proves it by the external of the world. So it's the eternal, internal, external, and people still don't acknowledge him. Now, one of the ways we know this is true, religion, there's a, there's a quote, and I don't know how you prove this. People make these kinds of quotes all the time. But there's a quote by some great theologian. Some other people might know who he is. He said that, that, that there's never been a society of people so uncivilized that they do not believe in a higher being. There was a book I was reading before in study of this. That it's called Israelite Religions. And it highlights all these religions prior to Israel being known and being before the Exodus and all of that, all these religions in the world at that time that they are aware of. And they all had gods, they all had rules, they all had statues, most of them had creation stories, all this stuff. 
and you think, how did they get all of this stuff? How do they even know this? It's because God has placed in humanity sort of what we call the, the uh, uh, um, we call it the eternalness of the soul, whatever. God has placed in people a sense that he exists. And so all these people are, know that there's a greater purpose, a, a higher being. Something has created this. Something is greater than just what we see here. And you see this in religion. Religions are the proof that people believe that some God exists. We see this proof. Science, believe it or not, is the same thing. While science doesn't give, doesn't give credence to God, it's almost, we, see, we tend to think science is trying to disprove God. Science just shows how God is working. Science believes in something greater, too. I mean, they're still trying to figure out how to get around that Big Bang Theory. I think it's very, very simple. Hebrews 11.3. For God said, let there be light. Bang, there was light. The Big Bang Theory is solved. It's just for me. So what can be known is evident among them, it's in them, and God's, God has shown it to them. This is not talking about saving knowledge, though. I'll explain that in a moment. He's not talking about saving knowledge. But there is a sense where people know that something in their inter internal is telling them there's something eternal, and they have proof from the external world. So how does this work? How does this work? How does all this work? From God's perspective, he says this in verse 20. This is his next four. For his invisible attributes, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Being understood through what he has made, as a result, people are without excuse. So from God's perspective, he says this, I have done enough in creation for people to believe that not only I exist, but I've demonstrated what kind of God that I am. What kind of God that I am. This is very important because a lot of the gods, if you look at a lot of the religions, if I should, I was going to, I knew time wouldn't permit, and maybe it'll show up again later on in this series. But if I were to really read some of these religions and what these gods demanded, eventually they get to a level of unrighteousness. They get to a level of like weird sex rituals, the sacrificing of children. They get to weird stuff. You know why? Because there is no other God but God. So these are demons people are worshiping. And demons will eventually lead you to a path of ridiculousness, utter sinfulness. These aren't, there are no gods. I think it's humorous that God acknowledges gods as if there are any. God speaks to us from how we understand the world. We think they're gods. No. It's God and Satan. That's it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Satan and his army. That's it. Everything in between is all, anything. if it's not God, it's all the devil. You would be surprised if you read something. People would believe this stuff. It was incredible. Well, he says his invisible attributes that is his eternal and divine power, divine, eternal power and divine nature. So God is saying, my, who I am, the kind of God I am is seen by the world that you live in. It's seen. Like, so an evil God provides for the animals? 
an, an evil God who demands you utterly destroy yourself or be unloving, an evil God gives you this beautiful sun and this beautiful moon that allows you to see the galaxy and the stars at night just from where you stand, no telescope. An evil God doesn't give you, gives you seasons. It's hot, warmer, spring, summer. Fall. An evil God does all of these things, allows you to eat and to live. And an evil God allows your, your women to give birth to children that you love and want to protect. You see, God is saying, what I've created shows what I'm capable of and who I am. There are times where preachers, and you, you'll hear this before, they'll say, let Scripture explain Scripture. So there's a rule, like if Scripture doesn't make sense, you let Scripture explain Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we're going to do that in this particular verse, verse 20. I'll give you a couple of pictures here. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. You can turn there if you're fast. If not, I'm reading. <laughs> Psalm 19 says this, the heavens, now this is from someone who believes, this is David, the heavens declare the glory of God. Right, listen to this. And the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. So he's saying, he's making sure people don't think the sky is literally speaking, but just the, the reality of it and the way that it all works in such an organized manner. He's saying declares the glory of God. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Because I, I, I do photography often, me and like Irwin, we'll go out on a, on, a, on a Sunday, on a morning. And we just want to get a sunrise of the city. So we'll get up at five in the morning. He'll show up and we pray that we don't crash because we're tired as I don't know what. And we do whatever, but we get into the city just because there's something beautiful, the color, the pink and the purple and the light blueness of the sky behind every, the Capitol or any buildings makes the city look incredible. And if anyone has seen a sunrise or a sunset, it's breathtaking. And don't, don't, don't let it happen over some water. Y'all know, know people be throwing water in their backyard to get a fake lake back there just so that people can, their property can sell more. But if you're looking over water, right? You, I remember one time I got up really early, went to uh, Sandy Point Beach, and I just, it was the first time I had done this, and I don't know, maybe ever, I think, actually. And I sat there. It was freezing cold. I wanted to take pictures of the sun coming up. And I knew what time it was going to come, and I watched it just peak up slowly. And it happens kind of fast, but it just kind of rises up. And it was the most beautiful scene. From God's perspective, that's supposed to show people what kind of God he is. 
Like, we should still be in awe of things like that. We should still be in awe of things like that. Acts 14, 8 through 18. Listen to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip past. I'm going to just skip to the two verses I want to hit, not the whole thing. Let me tell you what's happening. Paul is in Barnabas do this miracle. Paul heals a man who can't walk. And then all the people are like, the gods have come down. And they start worshiping Paul. Okay? They start worshiping him. And him and Barnabas are freaking out, like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't worship us. We're not God. And so, so here's what the scripture says. In verse 15 of Acts 14. It says, people, this is Paul shouting, why are you doing these things? We are people also, just like you. And we are proclaiming good news to you that from that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Listen to this. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. You see, this is the idea. This is what God has done. That should tell people what kind of God he is. And even if you don't know his name or anything, you know instinctively how you should live. And he'll hit this in chapter 2. In chapter 2, in chapter two I, oh, I can't wait to get to chapter 2. Remember this last portion, just to kind of, so this is Paul, Acts 17. This is very, this is Paul in the Areopagus. Many people are familiar with this. And Paul, and walking into this public square where people are debating, they love debates. Paul walks into this public square and he addresses everyone. And this is what he says. He says, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through observing the objects of your worship, I found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Right? So even though they worship all these things, they had enough sense to know these aren't, something's missing here. Something's missing because whatever all these gods are, something's missing. So here's to an unknown God that answers questions that these gods aren't answering. These gods. And so here's what he says. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Listen, listen to this. From one man, he made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out to him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So you see, here's a picture from God's perspective. I've created this. I sustain this. I give you everything you need 
And why? In hopes that people might seek me. That they might reach out and find me. These are God's words. Remember, God's perspective. This is God explaining why this, is, why the, why this exists. And now he's angry because people suppress that truth instead of seek him and try to find him. Now, this explanation wasn't far off to them because they're aware that something greater exists. Something greater exists. There's something within their internal that knows that there's something eternal and they evaluate the external. The problem is, the problem is, because they kind of had their own views of who God is and they wanted a God that they could more so interact with, they no longer were in awe of the things that of, of creation, of the creator, of whoever created this is incredible. They became in awe of something else, and we see that in the last four, for they ignored in, in chapter in verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So this from God's perspective. They knew at some point who he was, but they didn't glorify him as such. They didn't glorify him or show gratitude. So people living on the earth... They're benefiting from what God is doing, but don't give glory to him. Oh, man. This is where when you're preaching, you are making decisions on if you should go in a direction that you want to go in, but we have communion and other things. Let me tell you the question that I want to answer. Here's a question I want to answer. How is it possible for people to have known God and been specifically aware of his attributes? Like, how is that possible? Like, how do people get, how do people get this eternity sort of in their hearts? How does that happen? And when did, that, when did this change? Because God is saying they knew God and they did not glorify him. So at some point, people knew God. What happened? When did that change? What made that change? He's not talking about they knew God before sin. He's talking about after the fruit. Adam and Eve bit the fruit. He's talking about people, human beings after sin came into the world. How did that happen? Man. I'm going to say that for chapter 2. Y'all come back now, you hear? Uh, 
no, it's important that we proceed with what we're supposed to do. Hey, I will say this. Let me at least say this, because I feel better if I at least say this. It's very important to know that this, the, this is not saving faith, but this does explain very much so why God in Genesis 6 was, was grieved that he made mankind. You see, when God created Adam, it said he breathed into Adam the breath of life. You know this, he doesn't breathe into Eve that. You know why? Because in breathing into man the breath of that breath, that was the eternity in the hearts of men. He didn't have to do that with Eve, nor did he have to do that with anyone else, because all people are born with that. Remember, Adam represents all humanity, so when he breathes into Adam, he breathes that into everyone. So this sense of something greater and an eternal God exists because God breathed it into Adam. He didn't have to do it to Eve. He took Eve out of his, rib, her, his ribs. He didn't have to do that with Eve. He just took him out and created Eve. Didn't breathe into Eve. He didn't breathe into the animals that. He only breathed into Adam this reality. So this sense of the eternality of God exists. And you see this trajectory at the end of chapter 4, even after Cain kills Abel, that people began to call on the name of the Lord. So what happens when they get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and it says that people said, let us make a name for our own selves. We'll get into that in chapter 2. But the point of what God is saying here is that people knew him. They ignored him. And here's what's this, the wildest part about this. Here's the wildest part. Because we, the, the, the what God wanted people to, to see him and to seek him and and to have at least some sense of what kind of God he is through the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the heavens and the oceans. And like, I, I mean, people had to think like, man, how come the water never comes past that? You know, why does it, why does everything have a place? Like that was supposed to show what kind of God he is. But because people refuse to worship God and be in awe of what they can see, they began to be in awe of what? He created, and so now you're more in awe of animals than the sky they fly in. You're more in awe of birds. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a birder, that's fine. I, you know, I, you know, you, you, you write down, oh, that's an Oreo, Baltimore, that's a Toronto, that's a, that's not what he's saying. It's okay to like birds and stuff like that. What he's saying here, though, is that people would rather worship created things that if you remember the story from Genesis that you as a human being have authority over. They're beneath you. You're worshiping things that I gave you to be, in, to be authority over. So now you're creating statues. You're worshiping animals and people, things that you have authority over. Your mind is so warped now that you, your heart is so darkened that instead of being in awe of the things that you can't explain, you would rather submit yourself to things that you have authority over. It's the ultimate mental degradation. Like, how do you go from, wow, what an amazing sunset or sky to the God who created that is this bird. That's, that's what happened. That's what happened. 
Listen to this in, in, in Psalm 106.20. They exchanged their glory for images of grass-eating ox. So the God who, I mean, remember Exodus 32, the golden calf. What did Aaron say after he made it? Hero, Israel, here are your gods. Plural, here are your gods. That golden calf is the same thing that was the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. This golden calf split the Red Sea? No. But when your mind does not give thanks to who God is, you're going to worship something. We all have within us a desire to worship. We're going to worship something. And from God's perspective, people would rather worship things that they have authority over than the God who created the world that they live in. Jeremiah 2.11 says, has the nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. So people would exchange things like be more in awe of stuff like in the sky and stuff that's amazing that we still look over and exchange it for things that, that they, can, they can associate with and can handle. And people are more impressed and in awe of things that have no eternal value, things that God created that gave them authority over, like a phone, instead of the God who created everything. So I'll spend more time scrolling on my phone and looking at things, and I'm more in awe of this. And every time I get a notification, I'll look at something like this, but then I'll say, well, I don't read the Bible that much because I'm not a reader. I'm not a reader. And you can say whatever you want to that. When you stand before God, I guarantee he won't be like, yeah, I made it hard for you to read. It's just, it's just, it's just we're, we're easily distracted by things that, don't, that aren't as impressive One of the things I love about science is their, their acknowledgement of when they get stuff wrong. One day we got nine planets, then we got eight. <laughs> Pluto's actually not a planet. It's a big rock. Oh, okay, so we have eight. Okay. One day we have, you know, one day it's this. No, actually, it's not that. One day it's this. It's actually, it's not that. This stuff never changes, though. To this day, even though we know Jesus and we know saving faith is in Jesus, we can still look up at the sky and be like, wow. I know people who love a good thunderstorm. Just sit in the window and just love it and watch it. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I will be honest. I've been in play. I've, I've seen Lightning and stuff that some, when it's not striking near me, it looks beautiful from a distance. <laughs> now, if you're in the Midwest, you don't use analogies like this because they got twisters and people will be offended. Your church would be small if you talk like that. But there's just a sense of like, wow, this is incredible. Even to this day, thousands of however many you think the earth is years later, there's still these things that are beautiful. Like from, from standing here at night on a clear night, or let us go a little bit more in the country, man, we can see the Big Dipper and all this stuff in the sky. And they didn't, God didn't invent that for us. It's been around. They saw the same things. They saw the same things. But then said, man, that's cool. But let's worship this dog. 
It's wild, but it's a reality. What do you worship? What do you worship? You may not worship your dog, but do you worship your social media status? Do you worship your finances? Do you worship your time? So that everything has to revolve around what serves you? We don't worship animals and stuff like some people do. I still don't get putting sweaters on dogs and stuff, but that's a different story. That's me. I don't understand that. I don't understand certain pets. I don't, I don't, why would you have an alligator as a pet? I don't get it. <laughs> or a snake. Like the snake tempted Eve. Like that's just <laughs> common sense. Like snakes are not your friend. <laughs> it's probably not helpful. If anybody here works for Peter, understand where I'm coming from. There's a context of what I'm saying. We've been given authority over things that we choose to worship. So from God's perspective, his wrath, his intent to punish is real. It's just as real as his love is. And how that punishment, the way some of that comes out, when you get to a point, people have gotten so to a point that they would rather worship an animal than be in awe of the, create, the, the one who created this. You'd rather worship what was created. It just gets worse and worse and worse until it ultimately becomes something something from God's perspective that is dishonorable. And we'll look at that next week in verses 24 to 32. Questions? If you have any questions about your animals, I'm not answering them right now in front of anyone. I don't want to be, don't ask me will your animal be in heaven. I don't, I don't know. Hashtag all creatures great and small. There you go. <laughs> Um, we were discussing in Sunday school about election, so I'm currently in the middle of struggling with that, yeah. the mystery of that a little bit. So why is God angry if he elected certain people? Why is he angry at everyone who's not following him? Because there's going to be people that he didn't elect to follow him, right? Very good question. Very good question. Not very good answers. And the reason why is it's the same tension to me of how could Jesus be truly God and truly man. That's a hard thing to swallow. So what we know is the Bible teaches both and that somehow God has worked it out that that people could at least acknowledge him. Now, this passage wasn't even talking about saving faith, though. So it was talking about acknowledging who God is. So I don't want to speak out apart from what the, the Bible speaks and without some qualification. But it's possible that God is observing people not even making an attempt to see what he did. Because, look, even think about this. Even when sin came into the world, there were people that were calling on the name of the Lord. Right before he before I'm clear on what his name was, like he, the first time we really hear his name is later. But. Somehow, Eve says, I've had a child by the Lord. It says, end of Genesis 24, people at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It was right after Seth was born. So there is this sense where, okay, there are people who are at least, even though they're sinful, worshiping God on some level. 
And then, then you see these people just doing nothing, and the guy's like upset at it. So it's hard to know how that works. But I know from the passage and what you see in Scripture, there is some responsibility, culpability that mankind has. And I don't know how God's going to measure all of that out. Question. Yep. Brittany. Hi, good morning. Um, so in light of how God has placed um, eternity within man, um, how do we relate to those who are unsaved um, with that understanding? Like knowing that there's something in them that acknowledges mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. um, like how do we approach that without like getting frustrated and saying, well, you know that God exists, you know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, just Stop like, playing, you know. Right, you know, right. how do we how do we encounter that, I guess, struggle or internal struggle yeah. within people? That's a good question. So I think two things. I think, one, we have to know that um, because that is true, because God has placed that in people's hearts, one thing that we, we have to remember is that like, there is a sense where we can, like Paul did in Acts 17, right? He reasons, with, he, he starts off saying, I see you're a very religious people. He appeals to their, their understanding that some God exists. And, but then he begins to explain to them about the, who the real God is, to the unknown God. So a lot of people have used that method. I personally like that method, it, depending on who I'm talking to. Let me say this, people are different, right? If I'm in a barbershop, we have different conversations than if I'm... If I'm at the grocery store. It just depends on the people I'm talking to and the language I'm using is different. Um, but if I'm talking to certain, but I understand that people have, they're made in God's image. So from that alone, people are worthy of respect even if they don't believe. One of the challenges of the church, particularly those of a reform bent, is we can be very self-righteous towards people who don't believe. Look, people who don't believe, they're made in God's image and they're worthy of respect. Respect doesn't mean I'm going to approve or agree with you on all things, but I accept the fact you were made in the image of God and eternity is written on your heart. Even those who disbelieve, you're working, you're suppressing the truth. Atheists are just suppressing the truth as much as they can. But, 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 but all people have this reality. And so what I try to do is relate to them on that level, appeal to that. I want to appeal to that by asking questions about how do you explain this? So what do you think about like like stars and stuff. Well, I think science explains that. But well, what, about, uh, what, about, what about science explains that? I, I think it's good to ask a lot of questions because I think people, in our day and age, we live in sort of a soundbite society and a soundbite way of thinking. So people don't really give a lot of thought to why they don't, do, don't believe. They just have heard some, well, I saw this post on Facebook. It's like, it's, your soul is at stake. It better be more serious than that. Like if someone says that to me, like, well, I read this blog, I was like, man, so you placing everything eternally on a blog? Oh, man, you better hope they better get you to pick four or something because you're going to need that lottery. Because I just think, like, a lot of people don't really, don't really give a lot of thought to that. But I think, I think, one, they're worthy of respect. I think, two, I think in humility, if we do believe, as Scripture tells us, it was a gift from God. So we can't force people to believe either. But we can persuade and talk and befriend and love and, and pray for so I, so I'm not, I don't get in arguments defending the God because I can't force you to believe. 
Even as a pastor, I'll give counsel. People do what they want. Cool. See me. I'll talk to you when the consequences hit. That's just that's just what happens. Like you can't. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a dad. My kids, I can't. I, I can scare them into obedience. I can persuade them. But if you're gonna disobey, you're gonna disobey. Okay, son. I told you don't play at the top of the steps. Now you at the bottom of them with a hurt neck. It's like, <laughs> I told you, son. Gravity exists. Boop, 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 boop. So I just. So again, that's all you can really do. Is one. It's a gift that you believe, and so be patient with people that don't. And two, just have, you know, there is something that they have within them that says, man, something. And it, the Lord may use you to be a part of the process, or he may use you to lead them. I've done both. The Lord has led me to lead people to him in that moment, and then I've just been a part of it. And somebody got to me years later and said, man, I ain't listening. But then years later, this happened, this happened. So, you know, we trusted God. Here's what we know God saves, though. I don't know who he's going to save, but I know he does save, and that gives me confidence to say something. So, last question from Tammy, and then we're going to do, uh, we're going to get to communion. I'm sorry, uh, back there, Tammy. Hey, I wanted to know more um, about, you mentioned that um, it wasn't saving um, faith yeah. that was um, in Romans chapter, or that I guess is in, in nature, in the things that are made. Can you say um, more about that and how, if it's not saving um, if it's not saving uh, knowledge that's there, then how is it that they're without excuse? Good question. And this will be when we get to chapter two, when he really talks about like the law written on their heart. So Gentiles who obey the law without knowing the law prove that it's written on their consciences. What I think is this is what I I'm going to basically say what I'm going to say then. And the, essentially, I think what that passage is saying, and I may think differently when I get there, but this is what I'm saying now is that even if people don't hear the gospel, you know, what about the pygmies in Africa? People use it as excuse. How are they, you know, first of all, you don't know no pygmies in Africa, number one. So, but people do bring that up like, as, a, as a reason like why I don't believe, right? But God has put uh, uh, the eternity in their hearts is also a, a conscience. This is what he'll get at chapter two. There's a conscience that God's put on people's heart. So even if a person doesn't believe in Jesus, they can still be judged by God according to the, the conscience that he gave them. That people still, even, because think about this for a second, even though people don't believe, I've been to different parts of the world, people still have similar values. People want to love their children. They want to be nice. They want to do good things. Well, where does that come from? Because everyone doesn't have our justice system, and even our justice system, you know, it's not all, <laughs> that's a different conversation. So, so what I'm saying is there's something there, even when, by, in people all across the world that have different varying communities. I've been in places in India where they don't have any connection to anything we know about. But yet they all want to be good. They all, they love their families. They're crying when people are sick. They know that something's not fair. They're, there's this sense that they have that. God can judge people based upon their ability to keep their own conscience because he's placed eternity in their hearts. So we'll get to that in chapter two. There's more I'm going to say, but then I'm going to end up preaching that sermon beforehand, and I don't want to do that. So but that's a good question, though. Good question.